This is the Successful Fashion Freelancer Podcast, and I am your host, Heidi. My goal is to help you be a badass freelancer in fashion. Before we dive into anything, I wanna be crystal freaking clear about the difference between freelancing and what I call permalancing. Freelancing and what we talk about here on the SFF Podcast is true remote work, doing projects you love with brands that you choose. This is very different to permalancing, which is often referred to as freelancing in the fashion industry, where you work 40 hours a week for one brand, but you don't get any benefits, and when the project's over, you're pretty much unemployed. This is actually very abusive to our industry, and I don't condone this type of work. We talk about true freelancing on the SFF Podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here to listen. Freelancing was the only way that I found to create a work-life balance in my fashion career. And I grew my business from $0 the first year when I had no idea what I was doing and there were no resources out there, up to six figures. This was after I had had my own, air quotes, successful fashion brand, but I made no money because every dollar went back into the business. And this is also after I worked as an employee, putting in 60 to 80 hours a week in a toxic and abusive environment, making $22,000 a year. I started to actually hate the fashion industry and wanna leave until I broke off and figured out how to be a freelancer and create the life that I wanted in the fashion industry. That's what I want for you too. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Christina Yother, who is freelancing on the side while launching her own fashion brand. She actually kickstarted her brand while she was working full-time as an employee, which is something that a lot of designers do. She talks about how she juggled the schedule and fit in time to work on her own brand while she was so busy at her day job. She then wound up quitting her job, working on her brand, and freelancing on the side. Christina talks about so many aspects of her career so far, both in starting and launching her brand, how she had a very successful Kickstarter campaign and pre-sold her collection. She also talks a lot about how she has secured freelance work on the side to help fund her fashion brand. She has used the money from her job and her freelancing career to pay for a lot of the design and development for her brand, and she's going to share all of that advice with you in today's episode. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to her. Before we jump into the interview, I want to remind you that I have a ton of resources to help you with your freelancing. If you, like Christina, want to kickstart some freelancing on the side to help fund your fashion brand, or maybe you wanna go full-time and work more, that is always an option as well. My resources will help get you there. They're absolutely free. You can check them out over at soheidi.com slash freelance. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash freelance. As always, you can access the show notes as well as a direct link to those free resources by scrolling down wherever you are listening. Okay, now let's jump into the interview with Christina. Welcome, Christina, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Can you please begin by introducing yourself and letting everyone know who you are and what you do in fashion? Hi. Yes, I'm really excited to be here. Um, A little bit about me. I started my fashion career at the Savannah College of Art and Design, um, graduated in 2018. After that, I got a job. as a designer. And since then, I have been working as a designer, teaching classes, and also working on my own brand. Awesome. I can't wait to hear all about the things you're doing. Um, so you just started a few years back. So we're in 2021. So it's just three, been three years. Um, 
Tell us a little bit about what those three years have been like. And one of them has been in, in the middle of the pandemic. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about, you know, what happened when you graduated? Where did everything kickstart? Yeah, so it's been a really busy three years. It is interesting to think that it's only been three years because it feels so much longer than that. <laughs> but after graduation, um, I ended up getting a job as a designer um, pretty quickly after graduation. So I did that for a couple years, and that really helped me learn a lot about the business side of fashion, um, the type of things that you don't really learn in school as much. Um, so that was really helpful. And what I had always wanted to do, my dream had always been to start my business, my own line. So that's something that I always kind of worked on on the side and as a hobby. And after graduation, um, I think about six months after, I ended up showing my collection at Vancouver Fashion Week. And that's something that really kind of kickstarted and gave me the motivation to pursue my brand further as more than a hobby um, because the re reaction that I got there was really positive. So that kind of motivated me to see, okay, this is something that maybe I really can do. So I kept working, um, also working on my brand on the side, but it was definitely a long process um, working on my brand because I wanted to do it slow um, and make sure that I knew what I was doing before I officially launched. But that's Vancouver Fashion Week is kind of what kickstarted me to um, give me that confidence to go for it and start my own line. Okay, cool. And I want to talk a little bit more about that specific event. But before we get to that, like, how did you actually start the line? Did you draft the patterns and start sewing things yourself? And where'd you get fabric? Like, what did the whole process look like for you? Yeah, so it was a, definitely a long process. Um, I drafted the original patterns. Um, they Some of them were things that I had designed in school for my senior collection, and some of them were new. Um, so I drafted the original patterns, but I did need help cleaning them up and grading them. So I was sourcing fabrics on my own, kind of like trying to find fabric trade shows that I could go to, um, finding them in any way that I can. Um, but definitely I think my, I knew that my strong suit was not pattern making. So I knew that I wanted to find someone to help me with that, especially for the first time, um, for my first collection, making sure that the fit was right for everything. Um, so I actually had found a factory in New York who was going to help me, uh, clean up the patterns, grade them, and create some samples based on the updated patterns because I had my original samples that I had made myself, but I needed updated samples in the correct fabric for production and that had been made with those cleaned up patterns. And that factory in New York started out really great. I sent them everything and then they started taking months and months to email back oh. and I got my first samples and they were horrible. Oh no. And yeah. And so I know that in the fashion industry, when you're first starting on working your brain, like you're going to have to go through multiple samples to get something good. But this was just like, it was really bad. And so I gave them another chance and they sent the next samples months and months and months later and they were still the same. And so I realized like, this is not going to work. This is wasting way too much time. And I was luckily able to get everything back from them. Um, I definitely wasted some time waiting around for them, but I luckily was able to get like my fabric, my patterns back and everything. 
And after that, I realized that, okay, I need to learn a lot more before I get just go try to do this on my own. Yeah. And I was actually listening to your podcast and found a production management type of company where they'll kind of help facilitate finding a factory, quality control and things like that. And a lot of times I think companies like that will work with people who have no experience in fashion um, because they can start from the very beginning where you don't even know what you want to design yet. But since I did have a background in fashion and had worked in the industry before, we kind of started like halfway through the process since I already had my designs, patterns, basically knew what fabrics that I wanted. Um, they really helped me with just cleaning up the patterns and grading. And so that's kind of how I ended up um, getting everything finalized and ready to launch. Awesome. Can I ask, is it someone from the podcast that you're working with? Um, yeah, it, I'm not working with them anymore, but they helped me develop the designs. It was Pervy Label. Oh, Pervy Label. Jessica. Yes, yes. Amazing. I found her through your podcast. Oh, cool. Okay, we'll link to her episode in the show notes, you guys, so you can check out that. Um, awesome. I'm so glad you were able to make that connection. So, um, okay, cool. So, I and I, I don't love that you had the situation with the factory in New York, but I kind of do, especially because you work in fashion and you were able to figure out and navigate your way through that. And so I think for people listening, they might think, oh, well, just because you work in fashion, you have this huge leg up and you don't always, like things can still go wrong. You can still get connected with a factory that kind of ghosts you um, no matter your experience or connections in the industry. So I say that, you know, of course I don't want anything to go wrong for anybody, but that's the reality of the situation no matter your background or experience. Um, so I'm really glad you were able to find Jessica and and make some progress forward with that. I want to, before we talk a little bit more about your line and production, I want to know, tell us about doing this on the side while you're working, because I know that this is a really big challenge and I think People can look at a fashion brand as, oh my gosh, you know, I have to quit my full-time job and do this all the time. It's so much work. How do I get this done on the side? You know, I'm so exhausted from my day job. I only have nights and weekends and maybe yet you have other family responsibilities or, you know, life. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, especially in the beginning stages, like what was it like juggling your brand alongside your job? It was a lot of work um, because when you're launching your brand, like you, part of what you're going to be doing is a lot of meetings and talking with people. And so that schedule can be really difficult to manage. So I ended up working really early mornings all through lunch, late nights on my brand. Um, Any time that I had really basically all weekend was devoted to working on that. Mm -hmm. But what made it a little bit easier was that I loved working on it. So mm. I kind of think of it as like my job, but also my hobby. Yeah. And since I work, I love working on it so much. It's fun to me. It's, it's really all that I want to work on. Yeah. Um, that definitely made it easier. And also having a job that I did enjoy, um, that, that helped also because I didn't feel like I was like trapped at work or anything like that. Um, it's just, I had always had the goal of starting my own business. So it's just something that I always knew that I wanted to do, even though I did love my job. Um, but definitely when I, um, when I did end up quitting to focus full time on my brand, it was, it was a huge relief because I had like all of these hours in the day and I suddenly felt like I was able to get everything done that I needed to. And I think having to balance, um, working a full-time job while also launching your own brand, 
it did teach me a lot about um, scheduling and just making sure that I was prioritizing what really needed to get done. Um, and so then I think when I had all the time in the world to work on my brand, I think I, it really made me a lot more productive. Yeah, for sure. You said a keyword there, key word there, prioritizing. And I heard a quote recently that I just have to throw out because I love this so much. When people say they don't have time for something, they don't. you don't have a time problem, you have a priority problem. And so if... If your brand is not a priority, that's fine. You might think, oh, I really want to do it, but I don't have the time. If you can't find the time, then it's probably just not the biggest priority right now. And that's okay. Maybe it'll be a priority later. But like you said, you loved it so much. You were so excited that you, it was, yes, of course, this brand and this business that you were building, but you also looked at it as like a hobby and maybe an air quotes, you know, sort of passion project. And you were so excited about it that that's just what you were driven naturally to spend all your free time on. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, that's that quote is so true. I really love that. And it's for me it's definitely a passion project also. Yeah. So wait, when did you quit your job to work full time on your brand? Um, it was the end of 2019. Okay, so it's been a while, almost a year and a half. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and since then I have been doing some other things like some freelancing and um also teaching some fashion classes, but uh. nothing full time. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Oh, I love hearing this. Um, okay, so you worked at a full-time job, kickstarted on the side, then left, but are still supporting yourself by doing some freelancing and some some teaching gigs. Okay, I want to talk about that as yeah. well. Um, okay, so you had some trouble with production with the factory in New York. You connected with Jessica. You were able to move forward. And so where are we at in the timeline? Then you get what your first round of samples and you do the fashion show in Vancouver. Where are we at? So the Vancouver fashion show was before I really started working with a factory or anything. That was just my samples um, of the designs that I wanted to produce uh, okay. and that I had made. And so then the reaction from those was like, okay, I can do this. People like them. Um, and so then after I found Jessica and she really helped me, um, find a factory and things like that. Then we got our samples. We finalized the designs and I ended up launching through pre-orders on Kickstarter. Oh, um, yeah. And so I, I, I think I might have also found her through your podcast too. I can't remember if that's how I found her. Shannon. Um, no, Shannon's not been on my podcast, but I know, um, what's factory 45, uh, four yeah, 45. Yes. Um, okay. Yes, I know. Yeah, who she, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Shannon. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't remember if I found her on your podcast or not because yeah. I feel like I found so many resources on here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I ended up launching through Kickstarter um, because one of my friends who actually started her fashion line also gave me the advice that she would have not invested so much of her money in to start it because to start her own line because starting a fashion line has a lot of startup costs and can be a big financial risk, especially when you're starting it on your own. So I took that advice from her and started researching ways that I could launch through pre-orders. And of course, you can just do it on your website. But I found that launching through Kickstarter really gave the opportunity to reach a lot of new people. And so I found the class online that was called Crowdfunding Factory, and that is hosted by Shannon, and it basically teaches sustainable fashion lines how they can launch through pre-orders on Kickstarter. So that mm -hmm. was a class that I took, and it was so helpful. 
And it taught me a lot of strategies about Kickstarter, but also just marketing my brand and reaching new people. Mm. So that really helped me grow my audience while I was in the um, development phase of fittings and things like that. And so I ended up launching on Kickstarter. My launch was originally going to be March 2020. And (laughs) the pandemic, of course, made that not a good time at all. Yeah. And so I ended up moving it to September 2020. Okay. And so I... I launched that and I took pre-orders and the Kickstarter campaign was successful. So now I'm in the, thank you. Now I'm in the production phase. Um, So basically what my goal from the Kickstarter was to fund my first production run. Uh And the Kickstarter was also a really great way to test the market and to see what um, styles were popular, what sizes people wanted without just placing a production order to, to kind of guess if that's what people wanted um, to kind of eliminate the risk. Yeah, for sure. For sure. How, um, I think that like one of the biggest challenges with the Kickstarter thing is like, how did you actually wind up reaching people with your campaign and and getting people to purchase? Because, you know, it's, I think it can feel really hard to, to look at that and think, okay, well, like, who am I going to send this out to it? I just send it out to like friends and family or like, do you have a big Instagram following or like, where did you actually wind up reaching people with the Kickstarter to fund it? I reached most people, um, through Instagram and also through my email list, um, which I had been growing for like about, I mean, it's not a huge list, but it's, I had been growing it for about five years and because I had been working on it for so long, even though it's not huge, I feel like I had a lot of really dedicated and interested people in there who knew right when I launched, okay, this is something that I want to support. I want to buy your designs. So I had a lot of people who were really excited because I had been working on it for so long. And, um, I would always talk about the Kickstarter, on my Instagram. So people knew that it was coming. Yeah. And that is one of the things that they really teach in the crowdfunding factory is how to grow your email list, um, how to grow your Instagram following, because most of what I found in my experience, at least was most of your sales on Kickstarter are not going to come from just random people scrolling on Kickstarter. It's going to come from like the audience that you built. Yes. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So then over the last five years, like what had you and, and continue to do, what had you been doing and what are you probably continuing to do to build your email list? Because I think the concept of like starting from zero can feel really overwhelming. Like where do you even get those first few people? Are you just hashtagging on Instagram and saying, join my email list? Like what did that actually look like? Yeah, it can be really intimidating to start from nothing and feel like, why am I even doing this? Like, because it feels like it grows really slow at the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I did. So I started my posting my designs on Instagram while I was in school. Okay, and started growing my email list. Um, and how I grew that was through guest posting. So finding blogs who were similar to who who my target audience was and guest posting. And then they would be directed back to my website and like my designs and want to sign up for my email list to find out when I would be launching. Um, or to just, I would share a lot of like sustainable fashion resources in my email list. So things like that, Uh, um, having something to offer really helped get people to sign up. Um, and definitely events like Vancouver fashion week really gave it a bump. Um, and also, uh, other events like 
Um, I did a couple of pop-up shops and things like that. That really gave it a bump um, at certain times versus just like growing slowly. I also worked with some influencers that really helped um, get eyes on like, my designs and have new people find out about it also. Oh, very cool. Okay. I love all those strategies. Um, how did you connect with the influencers? Did you just pitch them and just say, Hey, I'd love to work with you? Yeah, basically I had a couple, <laughs> well, I had some people reach out to me, but most of them, I reached out to them. Um, and some of them I actually had connected with on Instagram because I have been growing my Instagram, like I said, for like five years, mm-hmm. I connected with them on Instagram years and years ago. And so we had kind of built like a friendship on Instagram. And so then when I was ready to launch, they were like, yeah, send me something. I'm excited. Yeah. So that really helped because it didn't feel like I was just like reaching out of the blue. Um, they have no idea who I am. Like we yeah. had kind of built that relationship. And so yes. that was really helpful. Yeah. So strategic to just kind of start having a conversation with someone before you, just to have start having conversation, not even before you need something. Like you might not even think that you need something, but just start having the conversation and building that relationship. And then when the time comes, you know, you guys are almost friends by then and then you're there for each other to support whatever you can do. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Um, and I want to throw out something too, because I think I, I glanced at your Instagram. It's not that, like, I and I don't want to say this, I, you've done a tremendous job and look, you've funded your Kickstarter. This is amazing. But for people listening, you don't have like a 20,000 person Instagram. It's it's a little more petite. I think, what were we at, like 1,500? Yeah, yeah, pretty close to that. And yeah, it's not huge. Um, I think what makes it work is that I have those people in there who are like really interested, who yeah. Friends um, who I have those relationships with that I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not huge at all. And I love that. It, would you mind sharing the size of your email list? Um, it's about three hundred people, so small also. So listen, you guys. This we're not talking huge numbers here. Um, and I'm saying, listen, you know, dear listener. <laughs> um, <laughs> And thank you for sharing that because I think, you know, in our talks, it could be very easy for someone to just make the assumption, oh, her email list must be thousands and her Instagram must be 10 or 20,000. You don't need a ton of people to do this. You need the right people that are engaged. And that's exactly what you have. And you've been able to grow and succeed your Kickstarter and launch your line with that. So that's amazing. Congratulations. I'm so excited for you. Thank Um, you. Yeah. Okay. So you did the Kickstarter in September and... You had done your samples. By then, you had done your samples with the factory is it, through working with Jessica. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then, you, and I imagine you did some type of photo shoot and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I had a photo shoot um, for. I made like a video um, announcing the launch and all that fun stuff. Okay, cool. And how had had you been like funding all of this before your Kickstarter? I, you were. You, where'd all that money come from? That is money that I had been saving from my jobs. So working as a designer, um, some freelancing on the side and things like that, that is where I was able to fund um, my development. Okay, gotcha. Can you talk a little bit about the freelancing on the side? Yeah, um, I did. I started doing some freelancing um, around the time that I had quit my full-time job. And that's because I did not have any time to do anything else while I was working full time and also on my brand. Yeah. And I got a lot of freelance jobs, um, just through LinkedIn and 
pretty much all of the freelance jobs that I have done have been around Clough, which if um, people don't know, that's a 3D fashion design software that's really growing. Yeah. Yeah, really growing in the industry because it has huge sustainability benefits. And I had learned that at one of my jobs. Um, and so I had that on my LinkedIn and people were just messaging me, um, can you do this project for me? I, I need a clove freelance designer for this project. And the people were just reaching out to me. Um, and so that is how I got most of my freelance jobs and then connections from those. But it really all started with LinkedIn. Oh, interesting. And just knowing that skill that was pretty new and I think still pretty high in demand. Yeah. And a lot of designers do not have the skill. So you're like really positioning yourself in a space where there's starting to become a big need. Um, there's high demand and low inventory as far as, you know, designers who can fill that need. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that I've really grown my skills in, um, from my job, a plus freelancing using it. And that's also what I teach at SCAD. Uh, And then I also use that in my own brand um, because really like having my launch right in the middle of the pandemic, (laughs) um, I was using it for virtual fittings and things like that. So it's been Uh, really helpful and definitely like I've used it in a lot of different ways. Oh, very cool. Oh, I'm so excited to hear how this one tool has really opened up so much for you. Yeah, it has. That's amazing. Okay. So you save money from your job, then you continue to support yourself and the brand by freelancing on the side. Then you do your Kickstarter. What was what was your Kickstarter dollar amount? Can I ask? Yeah, it was twenty two thousand. Oh, and you got twenty two thousand mm-hmm. from. I have to reiterate from an email list of three hundred people and an Instagram of fifteen hundred. That's amazing. Yeah, I was really excited. I knew that it was a pretty big goal. Yeah, um, but. It, I mean, it was worth it. Like, I mean, I, I definitely worked very hard during the Kickstarter and before, but yeah, yeah, I reached it from not a huge list at all. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. So that was in September. And so then you go into production to make all the pieces for these people who pre-ordered on Kickstarter and talk us through that. Yeah. So, um, now I am in the production phase. So from September until now, Um, I have been ordering, uh, like the bulk fabrics, getting them dyed, um, ordering all of my trims and things like that for the amount that I needed for production. Mm -hmm. And currently they're in production, um, at another factory in New York. Okay. And so they should be ready any day now. And then I'll be able to send them out to my Kickstarter people who pre-ordered. And I also will have, um, I also ordered more so that I can continue selling them on my website and hopefully do some pop-up shops or trunk shows or something um, in the next couple of months, hopefully. Yeah, as things open back up. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. As everybody gets vaccinated. Yeah. Um, so how how has the production gone? I mean, I know you said you use Clode to do some virtual 3D fittings, but tell us a little bit more about, I mean, especially production in the middle of a pandemic. And you live in Atlanta, Georgia, and you're doing production in New York. So yes. you're not close. Um, what what has it been like? Um, I think it's it's been actually pretty smooth. It's a factory that I had visited before, so having already have met um, the owners and been there, I think is definitely really helpful versus just having maybe found them during the pandemic because mm-hmm. I, there's no way I would have been able to visit and meet them. Okay. Um. So I had already known them and 
had like kind of a, um, I don't know, like we had talked and then, uh, kind of like I went a different way and was like, um, thinking about producing somewhere else, but then I ended up coming back to them. And so having already met before and visited, I think was really helpful and definitely made the process smoother because they knew about my designs, my design process and things like that. And I'd say the, the biggest delay with producing during a pandemic has definitely just been a lot of shipping delays. Mm. Um, the fabric dyer that I am using, they had a lot of COVID delays Um, so that has added a lot of time to my production timeline, but luckily it's all past that now, but that did add delays, but I did add some buffer time in there when I was planning to, when I was hoping to have it done versus when I told people that it would be done. So I did allow for some delays, which was definitely important, especially right now during COVID. Um, but I think it's gone pretty smooth, um, I would have liked to been able to go up to my factory again as they're working on the pieces, but that's not possible. But I am glad that I was able to meet them before. Yeah. Is this the same factory that did the samples? No, it's not. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so this was one you had found on your own. Yes. Okay. And there it's going well. Yeah, it is going really well. Um, okay. I, the people who did my samples, um, really helped me with, the grading and the size run that I did, mm-hmm. but their, their minimum order quantities were just too high for me. Mm. So I ended up finding this other factory in New York. Who's been amazing. Hey listener, quick 15 second announcement. If you are working on your brand, but could use some extra moolah on the side, visit. So slash freelance S E W H E I D I.com slash freelance for my best free resources. I will help you fund your dream while making sure you don't go broke. All right, now back to the interview. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about, you had the the first factory that, I I think it was the one that did your samples that you like didn't hear from them for months and months. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And then now you have this other factory um, who is doing your bulk production and things are going really, really well. In hindsight, you know, f- f- so the reason I ask this is for someone out there who's listening that's like, I need to find a factory to do my samples, to do my bulk production. You have two factories. You found them both yourself. One is going really well. One did not go so well. In hindsight, do you think there was any red flags or any questions or further research you could have or should have done to have helped prevent, you know, the, the mishap with the first factory um, and, and perhaps green flags with the factory where things are going really well. Like, what did you learn from these, from finding these two factories on your own and one went well, one didn't go well. What, what lessons did you take out of that? The lessons that I learned from the one that did not go well, um, I would say it probably would have been helpful to go visit them and see their quality of work. And also I would probably, if I were to do it again, have them make one of my designs, just as a test before sending them everything, um, mm. paying for pattern grading, things like that. Okay. I would have just paid for one sample just to see how it came back and see what they did okay. and see how long it took. Yeah. <laughs> and then that would have immediately shown me their quality of work and probably what close to what the rest of the samples would end up looking like. Yeah. So that's something I definitely would have done and would do in the future. And some green flags for the factory that I'm working with now. Um, right when I started emailing them, they were immediately like, can you come 
visit. We want to show you our work. We want to show you our space. Like, it's like very open and welcome. Um, and they weren't trying to, or they were like very open and not trying to hide, um, the people that they also produce for, um, Ah. showing me their work and things like that. So I think those were definitely some green flags that they're proud of their work and they wanted to show it and talk about it. Um, and that they, they asked a lot of questions about my designs and the construction and things like that. So I could tell that they really understood them versus the other first factory really didn't ask many questions. I just sent them stuff and they just did it. Ah, okay. Very interesting. Um, and now the second, so the first factory that did your samples, you did not go visit. Correct. And that was all during the pandemic. And that was sort of, not sort of, that was the reason you're like, I'm not really going up to New York in the middle of the pandemic. The first one was actually not during the pandemic. That oh, was, okay. Um, that was like actually before, um, it was probably right after Vancouver fashion week. So, okay. uh, maybe like late 2018. Okay. And why didn't you go? I, I don't know. I think I just, they didn't, I didn't know that that was an option, I guess, because oh. I was so new to it Yeah, and I was in Georgia, they were in New York. So it seemed like pretty far to go, but definitely now looking back, I think that's a necessary step. Okay. And you said they didn't, it, it kind of sounds like maybe they didn't really invite you. Whereas the second factory was like, Oh, you should come visit and very welcoming. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, okay. Gotcha. So you, okay. Interesting. So, then the second factory that did your bulk, that is dur- you did go up there during the pandemic. I went up there right before. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right, because you were supposed to launch in March. That's right. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so I went up right before, <laughs> um, and I was able to visit them. And then luckily I did go up when I did because I was kind of wondering if I should wait and just go up um, – in a couple months once yeah. they were about to get started, but I'm glad that I went. <laughs> then it would have been the pandemic. You really probably wouldn't have gone. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, very cool. So I love all these lessons learned. And for people out there looking for their first factory, these are definitely some great takeaways that they can apply to their situation. Um, I, I know we're, we're really jumping around here, but I want to go back to Vancouver Fashion Week because you said that was really what sort of kickstarted everything. So those were designs you had just made on your own, on your own sewing machines. Um, some of them, I think you said, were from school, right? Yes. Um, they're all ones that I just made myself, yeah, on my own sewing machine. Mm-hmm. Some of them were from my senior collection from SCAD, okay. um, but I needed to show more looks than I had done um, during my senior collection. So I made um, the rest on my own, um, just like when I had time on nights and weekends. Um, yeah. But yeah, all on my sewing machine at home. Super DIY. Yes. Okay. And how did you get connected with Vancouver Fashion Week and get into the show? What was the application process? Like how, how did all that go? They actually reached out to me on Instagram. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I've had a lot of connections come from just starting my Instagram and posting my designs and just doing that consistently and continuing to do that. Um, they reached out to me and invited me to come um, I think that you can also just apply, but they invited me um, 
to be a part of the next show. And so I just was doing some research. I had a friend who had actually done it the past year. So I asked her her opinion on how she thought it went and if it was worth it um, to make that trip up there. And, yeah, that's a big trip. And she said that, yeah, especially, yeah, from Atlanta. Um, but she said it was great. And so I ended up going and it was really, it was a good opportunity because it's, there's, they invite a lot of people. They really work to promote it really well. So I think that is kind of, um, one thing that I benefited a lot from it was getting people to see my designs who never would have seen them otherwise. And then they, they also invite, um, a lot of like magazine editors and blog editors. So I think it was also really helpful getting feedback from people, um, about which pieces that they liked and just seeing the whole collection together. Um, it got a lot of excitement and positive feedback. And that's kind of what really motivated me and um, gave me the confidence to pursue my brand because it is something that I had always wanted to do, but it can be a scary thing to just start and decide that you're going to do and a lot of work. Yeah. So um, how did it work? Did you have to, I, I want to hear about all the the people that you connected with there and all the feedback you got and what the actual event experience was like, but a little bit more on the planning side of things. What did you have to coordinate for like hair and makeup and models? And, and especially you're doing this from, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, and this is in Vancouver. Um, what did that process look like? So one really good thing about Vancouver Fashion Week is they will provide hair and makeup and models. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you just have to give them, um, say, pictures of the hair that you want, pictures of the makeup that you want. Okay. And you'll arrive a couple days early for the show and you'll have a fitting. So they have a ton of models there and you can try them on and decide which model is going to wear which of your looks. Oh, cool. And so... Um, they have a lot of options in case like you need someone really tall or someone not so tall and they have plenty of models and so you'll just try them on and then they'll do a dress rehearsal. Um, you, some things that you do have to plan are you have to bring your own music. So you have to make sure that you have the rights to that. Um, and then if you want any accessories, like I did bring my own shoes for my models, but if you don't have specific shoes, they do have like a really basic pair of heels that the models can wear. Wow. Um, and some other planning was also, they do ask you while they invite a lot of people, they do ask you to promote your own show some. So I was reaching out to, um, some people on Instagram and inviting them to my show specifically. Mm Mm-hmm. So there is definitely some preparation that you have to do. Um, and then, sorry, there was one other thing I was going to say and I can't remember. That's okay. (laughs) But it sounds like a really plug and play environment. Like they really facilitate a lot of the hard pieces and components for you. Yeah, definitely. Which was really helpful. Um, especially being pretty new out of school and being my first fashion show and things like that. Um, for the size of it, it's really nice that they provide all of that for you. Um, um, and so I did end up, I did actually bring one of my models with me from, um, from Atlanta because I have a friend who does a lot of modeling and she has kind of been one of my models from the very beginning. So I invited her to come with me and she was one of my models in my show also. Oh, cool. Okay, cool. So you get there, you do the show and it goes really well and you, you start getting really good feedback. Like tell us a little bit 
about that moment and that excitement. And, you know, I have this visual of like your collection going down the runway and then like all the, all the excitement and momentum after that. Like, can you talk us through a little bit about that exact experience? Yeah. So it was a really exciting moment having my collection go down the runway. And then at the end, I went down to the last model and seeing the audience completely full and everyone clapping was like Aww. such such an exciting feeling. Yeah. And then after the show, you're able to go out um, onto the runway and people can mingle and talk and you have all of your models out there so people can look at the designs up close. Oh, cool. And I had a lot of people coming up to me, giving me their business cards um, and just saying how much they loved it. And that feedback was like really, really great. And so I love that Vancouver Fashion Week does give the opportunity for right after the show, yeah. um, you can go talk to people so that um, instantly you can connect with them. And, you know, I feel like at some shows when it's just constantly um, designer after designer after designer, if someone really likes your collection, it might be hard to get to you at the end of all that, or they might forget. Yeah. And so I think that that is a really good opportunity to go, um, out there and collect business cards and give it to you, give people yours and for people to see the designs up close, because I think that that can make a really big difference. Yeah. Um, they can see the quality of them. And so then after that kind of mingling happened, I was backstage and I also had a lot of magazine editors and people who were interested, come backstage and just tell me how much they loved it. Um, I had one person from L and she came back and she was like, I'm in Vancouver for the next week. Can I borrow some of your pieces for a photo shoot while I'm here? Wow. And so that was really, really exciting. So then did they, did she, did they get covered in L? Um, she just used them for her personal Instagram and like blog. They didn't make it in the magazine, but okay. yeah. But still that's really exciting. Yeah. Oh, very, very cool. Um, okay. So you got a lot of momentum and obviously like so much encouragement and inspiration from this show and validation to say, okay, I'm going to do this. Yes. A lot of validation. Yeah. Okay. And so that's when we dive into the samples and the Kickstarter and then ultimately production, which we're in the middle of hopefully at the tail end of right now. When do you think the actual pieces will hit your doorstep? I'm hoping in like the next week or two. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, so very soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's the middle of March right now. So the pieces are going to arrive. You'll fulfill the Kickstarter orders. And then you said you got some extra pieces. So what what are your plans for the next few months? My plans are to continue selling them on my website. Um, even after the Kickstarter, I was still having pre-orders available on my website. Okay. But now people will be able to order them right then. And I think that timing is good because they are, it is like a summer collection. Oh, cool. So the timing works out really well right now with people. Um, it's the right season for people to buy them. Yeah. And then I also really want to be able to do some pop-up shops. Um, I had that originally planned during my Kickstarter yeah. to do a ton of pop-up shops and trunk <laughs> shows in different cities. And then of course that is like not possible at all. Yeah. But I had, um, a lot of those scheduled and they got canceled or turned virtual. And so I'm really hoping to be able to reschedule some of those. Um, once people, once more people get vaccinated and once it's safe to do that. Yeah. Um, but I had a lot of those scheduled by just going, um, to a lot of different cities and, I did a ton of research research on stores to see which stores I thought would be a good fit and just walked in and pitched my designs to the owner and gave them one of my lookbooks and I got Wait, a hold lot on. Of, 
You, like, literally just found boutiques and, like, showed up and just walked in and said, hi, here's what I'm doing? Yeah. Wow. When were when yeah. did you have the opportunity to do all this traveling? Um, it was after I had quit my job to work on my brand and uh-huh. when I was doing a little bit of freelancing. So I had a lot more flexible schedule uh-huh. uh, because a lot of what I was doing was just working from my computer. Okay. So I was traveling and doing research on stores and just going in and pitching my designs. <laughs> okay. Talk, I want to hear exactly about like how you approach these these boutiques. Like I want to walk through this really step by step because I think that the pop-up shops are super valuable and I think that these relationships with the retailers are super valuable, but it's a I mean, I don't know, you're making it sound pretty easy, but I want to hear exactly like what this looked like. Yeah, so I really wanted to do pop-up shops because like you said they are valuable and I feel like my design specifically people really fall in love with them when they try them on uh, because they see how easy they are, they are to wear, how comfortable they are. Yeah. So I thought that was going to be something that would be really helpful for me. Yeah. And so I, whenever I was going to go to a city or I thought that it was a city that would be a good market for my designs, I did a ton of research on basically all of the small boutiques there. Okay. Um, because I only wanted to go into stores that had like one location, weren't big because I thought that would give me the best chance to talk to the owner. Mm-hmm. And so I researched all these stores, would make a map of like where I was going to go and what order. I made lookbooks. I wrote a letter to each of the owners, personalized, um, and put some other stuff like together in a packet. And I just went into each store, asked if the owner was there. If I knew her name, I would use their name. And um, either they would say yes, and they would bring the owner out. And I would say, hi, uh, my name's Christina. I'm actually in the process of launching a fashion line. And do you have a minute? And I can show you my designs. And usually they would say, yeah, sure. And I would just show them my designs, talk about the fabrics, the sustainability, um, my process. And usually they would like have a really good reaction. Um, and they might not say, yeah, we'll definitely do a pop-up shop. They might say, I don't know if this is like right, right now, but I love your designs. And I think it's awesome that you came in here and did this. Yeah. So I did get a lot of like no's or maybes, but I also got a lot of yeses. And I also got a lot of connections for people who are like, we might not be able to do this right now. We book our pop-up shops a year in advance, but definitely reach out again and we can schedule something later. So I got a lot of connections that I can use in the future. Okay. Um, and then if people, if the owners weren't there, then I would just leave the packet with them and um, ask for their business card so I could follow up with an email. Uh-huh. But yeah, I got, I mean, it was, it was a really scary experience yeah. because it was really out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, but it was actually really, really fun because it gave me more confidence to talk about my designs. And I didn't get anyone who was like, why are you here? Why are you talking about (laughs) your designs? You know, like that's kind of like the scary thing that you think might happen. Yeah. But everyone was so nice. Um, and like the reactions I got, even for the stores who didn't feel like it was the perfect fit, they were still so nice and listened to my whole pitch and things like that. And I kept the pitch short because I didn't want to take up too much of their time or if the store was really busy, of course I, made sure to keep it really short. Um, but some of the stores I went in, like 
the owner was there. I got to have like a long conversation with them. And I think it was, it was really, really, it was a good experience, even though it was definitely out of my comfort zone. Um, so those are the pop-up shops that I'm hoping to be able to reschedule in the future when it's safe to do that. Yeah. I love that you did this so much. Um, so like what type, where, what cities are we talking about? Cause you're in Atlanta. Like how far were you? I picture you like jet setting around. <laughs> <laughs> the farthest I went was Austin, Texas. Okay. So that's far. I mean, we're not, yeah. it's not, so you literally were like getting on planes and flying places. And was that, those were your sole, that was your sole purpose to go there and to talk to boutiques and pitch the pop-up shop. If I got on a plane, I had another reason to go there. Uh, so I wouldn't get on a plane just to go there. Um, I was actually working with a pattern maker in Austin. So every time we would, I would go there to meet her, I would go and go into more boutiques. Uh, um, and so then when I was there, I would also go to some other stores and cities nearby. Um, I was, since I'm in Atlanta, it's a pretty easy drive to like Savannah, Charleston and things like that. So I would drive to those cities specifically okay. for this reason. But if I was getting on a plane, I had another reason to go also. Okay. So multi-purpose. Um, yes. okay, cool. And so you just went in and you pitched and then you were like, can we do this? And you got some yeses. And so now, and then you said you wound up doing some virtual ones. Yeah, I did some virtual ones. Um, if it was, if the store was like still interested in that and they, I think they were good, but it didn't give me that opportunity for people to like try them on, which was my main goal. Yeah. Um, but it was virtual ones through like Facebook live or Instagram live. Okay. Gotcha. And so what does that even look like? Like where you show the designs and people are there and the boutique is hosting and promoting to their audience. Yeah, either that or I'll host it and they will promote it and post about it also. Okay, gotcha. Um, and just kind of like trying on the designs, um, showing some different stylings, talking about the pieces and like how they move and then talking about the launch and how people can pre-order them. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Very cool. Um, okay, so you wound up going through with some of those and then the other boutiques you're still in talks with and hopefully you can get those rescheduled. I mean you know, fingers crossed things are going well with the vaccine right now. So hopefully maybe middles, early middle summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Very cool. Um, amazing. Wow. There, I know. Okay. I'm just remembering back to the beginning of our conversation. You were like, I can't believe it's only been three years. It's been so much has gone on and it has, (laughs) you've done a million things. This is so cool. Yeah. It really has like, it's flown by, but it also feels like it's been so long. Yeah. Um, amazing. So anything else big planned for the future? You just kind of continue, um, working through what you're doing. Working through what I'm doing. I'm working on a fall collection right now. So that's exciting. Um, and that's probably what my biggest focus is on right now is designing that fall collection, um, learning from all of the things that have happened the past three years to make (laughs) this one, um, a a smoother process, but still good. So yeah, that's what I'm working on now. And also filling those Kickstarter orders and then hopefully, um, being able to continue selling those spring designs that I have now through pop-up shops and on my website. Awesome. What would, and maybe you already talked about some of them, but what would be some of those big lessons that you're, you're going to take forward into your next collection that you learned from the first one? Um, 
I think one thing that I found really helpful was, or I would say working with the same person as much as possible. I feel like I found that the more things like trade hands, the more confusion or the more things that might have to be redone. Mm -hmm. So I would say one of my lessons that I learned was definitely finding someone who can do multiple things or who has connections that definitely makes things run smoother. And then also, um, making sure to give yourself buffer time for delays that might come up. Those are two <laughs> things that I learned. Yeah. Um, the buffer time is huge. Like probably double the estimate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then prior to that, you said, um, or in conjunction with that, you said, um, I love the, the idea of like the more times things change hands, the more opportunity there is for things to go wrong. Like what types of, of people you said, you know, working with fewer people, like, are we talking about maybe a factory that can do more of the process or maybe the pattern maker who can also do this other thing? Like which exact people that would you try to sort of, I guess, merge or condense into fewer people? I, yeah, I, I think the two that you said, a factory that can also make patterns or a factory that um, can make samples because I think then that will eliminate at least one sample that needs to be made because if you're going to be making patterns with someone who only makes patterns, you'll probably have someone make a sample of that pattern to test it out. And then when you go to your factory, they're going to want to make another sample. Yeah. <laughs> and so it just kind of eliminates one of those samples or maybe more depending on if you need another one. Yeah. And also it just, I think it gives the factory more experience with your design so that they don't have as many questions when it's time for production. Yeah. Um, because they'll really understand like the construction of them and the details and have done it before. So they'll just be more comfortable with them and understand them better. Yeah. Um, and I think just a lot of like questions that come up and having to make sure that, especially for my designs, because I think mine are, they're pretty complicated um, patterns and very unique patterns. So I think that's something that I found that can be helpful to others, but also specifically when your designs aren't, um, or have pretty unusual pattern shapes is that you need a lot of samples. So anywhere that you can have someone really understand them better and not have to make more samples is, is going to be helpful and save you time. Yeah. So would you say that in hindsight, that first factory that you found that you had doing sample production in hindsight, you might've looked at them and thought, okay, wait, but they're, MOQ, their minimum order quantity for bulk production is too high. So why would I do my samples here? Why not find a factory that I can meet the MOQ and can do the samples? Would that be a lesson you might've learned? Yes, definitely. Okay. Okay. So many great takeaways from this. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, Very cool. So um, Christina, where can people connect with you online and check out all the awesome stuff you're doing? They can find me at ChristinaYotherDesigns.com, and it's Christina with a C-H, and Yother, Y-O-T-H-E-R, designs.com, and that's my Instagram also. Okay, great, and we'll link to all of that in the show notes, and I'm so excited for for everyone to check it out. This is amazing, and 
As you know, the question at the end of the podcast that I ask everybody, I would love to know, what is one thing people never ask you about working in fashion that you wish they would? I wish that people would ask, um, because any starting any business is difficult, especially fashion. I'd say I'd like people to ask, how can someone maintain excitement and motivation while going through a lot of challenges of starting a business. Yeah. And I would say to have a passion purpose or story behind your brand, that is more than just, I make clothes. Oh yeah. I love that. So what, what's your passion purpose and story? I think my passion behind it is definitely sustainability. Um, and just, choosing to always use sustainable fabrics. Um, something that we didn't talk about is that I recycle my excess fabric into accessories and donate profits from those to women's shelters. So that's kind of like my passion behind it. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe we didn't touch on that. Yeah, I know. I didn't even come up. Yeah, that's amazing. And so that's like one of those sort of things like in your heart of hearts that keeps driving you, even when things feel like really tough or really challenging, you're like, no, there's a bigger purpose here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. Very, very cool. Yeah. And I also want to ask you the same question. Oh, what do you wish people would ask you? I think you're the first guest to ever put me on the spot with this. I love (laughs) this. Um, you know, for me, the answer has always been, and so I have to throw out this disclaimer that this actually does wind up coming up as one of the most common answers. But when this was, when my husband actually is the one that came up with this question when we first started the podcast, um, and we've been doing it since episode one, it's never changed. And I loved the question because for me, it was always like the technical and the business and the nitty gritty things that go on behind the scenes. Like it's not, and I, and I got to figure out how to actually form this into a question. Um, but it's like, it's almost like, what is it really like working in fashion? You know, there's just this perception that, oh, it's so fun and so glamorous. And, and people's first reaction is always how cool and how glamorous. And it's like, the reality is that 98% of it is not glamorous. <laughs> Um, and so it's such, it's, it is the most common answer that people give, but I remember when, when he and I first were discussing the sort of theme question of the podcast and I was like, that's it because that's the reality of our industry. And I actually, in a nerdy sort of spreadsheet way, those are actually the parts of the process that I personally am really driven by. The design is great and super fun, but I really get in that's what gets me excited is, is, um, all the technical and the logistical details that go into designing one piece or launching an entire brand and collection. Wow. That's interesting that that's your favorite part. Um, yeah. I feel like that's <laughs> a, like definitely an uncommon answer, but yeah. it's so true because there really is so much more to it than just designing. Yeah. The design is like such a small component of it. And I think that, um, yeah, for, I think that from from an outside perspective, if you're not in the industry or it's like something you're aspiring to do, you can be excited about design and that's amazing. But I think I, I just want people not to be blindsided when they get into it that, okay, design is actually a very small percentage of the whole pie. 
So true. Especially, you know, I mean, I think when you're maybe working as an employee, you depending on how large the company is, you might be doing design a lot of the time if you work in a big company and that's like sort of your exclusive role. But now you know and you see with your own brand, um, I think you wind up spending even less time on design. Yeah, that's very true. I I would probably say I spend like 10 to 15% of my time designing at the most. So that's really low. And it was definitely something that was different from my job because I was at a big company. Uh, So my sole role was designing. So that's what I did uh, 90% of the time. Yeah. So now you're seeing the complete opposite side of the spectrum. How are you feeling about all the business and logistical side of things? I actually like it similar to you. Um, I didn't expect to like it that much, but I think the more you learn about the process, I think the more that you'll enjoy it if it's something that you kind of like to do at all. But I like being organized. So (laughs) I like having like all these spreadsheets and um, especially with my own brand, kind of like being in control of everything. So I do like the other aspects of it. Yeah. Okay. Spreadsheet nerds unite. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I think I've talked about it a couple, it doesn't come up, spreadsheets don't come up too often on the podcast, but, um, if you guys are on my email list or follow me on Instagram, I do talk about my spreadsheet nerdiness a fair amount. (laughs) (laughs) Um, awesome. Thank you for throwing the question back at me. I really appreciate that. And you are, you are the first person to do that. So so great I idea. can't believe that. I'm, yeah. I was excited to ask you because I always wonder at the end of every podcast episode when you ask your guests. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It inspired a fun little conversation there about spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for joining us on the show. It was really great to chat with you and hear your story. Yeah, it was really great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Freelancer Podcast. And thank you to Mark and Tara for everything that you do behind the scenes. My husband, Mark, does all the editing and tech to make sure that the podcast runs smoothly. And Tara is our podcast production manager to schedule all the shows and make sure everything gets published and so much more. And again, thank you so much to you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. The show would not be here without you guys today. I am so excited to share this content about freelancing because it is really the only way that I found to create the freedom and flexibility that I craved in life while also working in fashion. I had my own brand, which I grew to $40,000, but only had $8,000 left over for profit after working 60 to 80 hours a week. It just wasn't enough to live on. I also worked as an employee earning a measly $22,000 and that was not enough to live on, nor was the toxic environment good, or I didn't enjoy it, and life was not feeling right to me. I personally realized that freelancing was the best option to do what you love while keeping your sanity. Whether you want to escape from the corporate BS, earn money on the side, or finally be in control of your own schedule and life, I can help you. I grew my freelance career from $0 to six figures. This was before remote work was possible, not possible, before it was the norm. Of course it was possible because I grew up to six figures. This was before the pandemic, before it was the norm over a decade ago. Now since the pandemic, this kind of work is the future of the fashion industry. Go to soheidi.com slash freelance. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash freelance for my best free resources just for freelancing in fashion so you can give yourself the freedom and flexibility you deserve while working on projects you love. As always, scroll down for the show notes. Thanks so much again for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Freelancer podcast episode.